back. Pulls up for three. Boom! Knocks it down. Curry from the corner at three. Puts it in. For overtime. Makes it. Garrett. Hello and welcome from me, Mark Woods, to the latest edition of the MVP Cast, brought to you in association with Total Environmental Compliance. Check out their consultancy services for a wide range of environmental issues at tecompliance.co.uk. Now, our guest this time out is part of one of British basketball's greatest family dynasties and one of our most talented young players who's had a quite challenging 12 months, but who's facing the challenges of the current world very much head on. Kyle Nelson, welcome to the MVP Cast. Thank you for having me. Uh, firstly, how's lockdown been for you? I guess you're back in the UK, hanging out with the family? Yeah, I'm back. I don't think I've been back for this long, for a long time. And same as my brother, Luke's back too. So we get to spend a lot of time as a family. It's been really nice, actually. Your dad, and we'll start with a contemporary issue, but your dad, Steve, uh, England international back in his day, a brilliant player for people who remember predominantly from, for Worthing Burrs, but now uh, you know, chief executive in the in the sports industry. And he wrote... Uh, interesting uh, blog based on what we're all talking about now about black lives matter and, and mm-hmm. the chase for for more equality and more diversity but he he said that yeah i'm quoting here i would sit and listen to my dad and uncles discussing loudly as a young teenager as well as experiencing overt racism directed at me friends and loved ones i had honest conversations with my wife when our mixed race children were born as to how some people in society will view them based on the color of their skin now, obviously, your dad brought up in an era where I guess it was much more ignorance about race in this country, where it was much more overt in that time as well. But we're now in an era where people are talking very much about how that journey is not at its end. Yeah. As the children that he was talking about and for whom he had the fears for, how have you experienced the reality compared to what he maybe was worried or concerned about? Um, If I'm honest, I think I've had it a lot easier than he probably did growing up. I think I was around an environment that really wasn't challenging for my race as much as probably he was. Um, But let's be honest, although I'm mixed race, I'm always going to be classed more as black. Um, And there are always things that come with that. And especially in America, you see that firsthand I think being out there you kind of realize the the extent to what it is caused in society and in in people's life um yeah and kind of I've been quite vocal about I think this movement and I think my dad was right in terms of trying to be open and talk about it and again in his blog later on he kind of talks about how it's gotten to him where he, got, um, gotten to him where he is and I think he he's an exception um, rather than the rule, um, especially in sport in this country. The leaders, the organisations, corporations, there's just no no diversity, um, which is unfortunate. He he's done a great job to where he's gotten to, but I'd love to see more. Um, and I think that's what he's trying to build towards. Is we've realised that it's a kind of systemic issue and institutional issue that will take a long time to change but I think now the conversations are happening now's the time to really push for stuff like that. What's been the healthiest part of this conversation because obviously you being based a lot of the time in the states at college being back Mm -hmm. here as well where you grew up 
it's 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 different conversations on each side of the Atlantic, but in this, in one sense, it's part of the same bigger conversation. But yeah. what's what's what part of that has do you think being the most important part is it, is it the recognition factor? Is it the actual pure conversation about what needs to change? Well, you know, maybe what's the key thing on this for for someone of your age and your backstory that mm-hmm. that's maybe touched you the most? I think it's seeing the acknowledgement from a lot of other people and it's not always a nice conversation but it's acknowledging from others that I guess have been like okay I was ignorant I I did say some things but I've realized this is wrong and now how can I educate myself in order to understand this movement I think my generation in general has done a, a much better job in kind of being more open and trying to educate themselves and trying to really um before a movement that really just wants equality um so i think for some of my age it's important because obviously it's my generation it's the next generation after me that's gonna have to deal with and hopefully have a better i guess environment to grow up in if you are a person of color um so i really do try to if i find things that i really enjoy to read or that i've educated myself on i try to share it um, try to sign petitions and stuff like that but I think for my, my age it's important because I'm obviously a voter and it does start with those in charge and those in power so to try and educate myself and understanding how I can be a help for this movement has kind of been a big thing for me over this lockdown period. I mean you've been you've been vocal on, on, on social media about this so you want to follow Carla on, on Twitter she's at Carla Nelson underscore and um, but do you being back here, I mean, obviously in America, this is much more of an overt discussion and an overt conversation and an overt issue. But being back here at this moment in time, have has it surprised you maybe the level of noise that this has generated and maybe the conversation level that you've experienced from people because it suddenly jumped up from nowhere here? Um, I don't think it surprised me. I think a lot of people would be surprised by the racism that is shown in this country. I think it's covered a lot better um, in terms of it's hidden. Uh, and obviously, population-wise, we're a lot smaller, but I think it's still a big issue. Um, and I, I've been surprised by by the conversations I've had with quite a few people, but I've really enjoyed them at the same time. And it's not enough to be less racist than America, I believe. Um, and there are definitely issues here that need to be spoken about. Uh, it's about finding ways to be anti-racist and to have a voice and to understand it might not affect you directly, but this is still a movement you need to be a part of and these are the reasons why. So um, again, it's very different to America and I think we can all see that, but there are definitely issues here that need to be spoken about. And it's really good that people feel they can open up about their hardships and stuff like that. And no one's saying that no, no one else has had hardships and um, hard times and struggles, but we're talking about those struggles by the cause of the colour of their skin. Um, and I think that's a great conversation to have and it's been needed for a long time. And I think the stuff in America has just highlighted that and it's given people a voice. Do you think it's been healthy? More than one thing that struck me about this is that you know, we talk about the history of this country and it, as everyone is now starting to realise, we're all taught a very narrow prism of what that history looks like. Mm-hmm. And there's lots of it that's been brushed over or mm-hmm. just been 
ignored completely. Do you, do you think it's a, in a way, it's almost we're almost all learning about history, black, white, whatever. We're now mm-hmm. finding out things that none of us were really told about, and that's actually quite almost one of the healthier things to come out of this. Yeah, definitely. I think me and everyone is learning are learning things that we we didn't know, um, and a lot of things that had been kind of pushed under the rug for for years through history. And it is funny to think about kind of what gets chosen to teach kids in schools and to t- like even just to put out there for others to read. And I think it has been a healthy part of this journey. I think it's been needed because none of us really understand the history, um, especially in England, of um, racial injustices and discrimination. Um, and I think it's important that if you do come across this stuff, it is to educate yourself because we haven't been educated before. And I think that also needs to change in the future. I mean, growing up, and we've had remarkable, disturbing stories from, from many Black Britons over the last few weeks and just small things, you know, uh, Sprinter Dean Asher Smith talking about being followed around a shop on Oxford Street when she was shopping for an expensive handbag, I think it was, or something like that. And, you know, it's the tiny things. Is there something that sticks out for you that made you sit up at some point in this country and go, eh, that doesn't sit well with me? Um, I, I've, I've heard a lot of conversations, I think, but also I'm from Worthing, which is a predominantly white um, town. So growing up, I always felt different. Um, I felt like I stuck out and people kind of saw that, um, especially as a kid. Um, there's a comment here and there, but I think the thing that stuck out the most was people wanting to touch my hair constantly um, and thinking that's okay. But really, it just made me feel like an alien. Um, and it wasn't really an ask. It, they had their hands were in my hair before they kind of finished the question. So I think... Um, everything that kind of stuck out to me was just all these people wanting to touch my hair where I was and at the time as a child you don't know if that's right or wrong or how to articulate this is my space so I think I was quite nice in terms of accepting that and thinking it was normal but after growing up I kind of realized no it's quite ignorant and it's kind of personal I guess. I mean I I spoke to Kieran Achara a few weeks ago similar Mm-hmm. In a sense, great, guy. Mm-hmm. great guy mixed race mm-hmm. went to america went to pittsburgh of all places yeah and yeah. and find himself i guess discovering his identity through the back door in a sense of going over there you know being aware of his his differences on this side of the atlantic going there and feeling very different but also being different to the people that were over there what was that transition like for you you know going to you know a city like Pittsburgh northern state in, in the US you know, did mm-hmm. how do you, how does your identity get shaped by arriving in that side of the Atlantic and embedding yourself into the culture there um that's a good question I guess being out there the way kind of my teammates talked to me and explained it to me was if you're a tiny bit black, you're fully black. So I guess out there, especially in a place like Pennsylvania, I was looked at and identified as a black a black person. Um, and I guess the other half of my culture wasn't really thought about as much because I was half black, so which, which made me, I guess, black. Um, I think my, I mean, everyone I was around was very much open and I don't think I, there was one experience that kind of, made me think, okay, this culture is very different, but the conversations and the things that I saw kind of proved 
the discrimination and inequality and I was a part of that um out there so um I would just say I was quite aware of it through other people but there was nothing that really stood out it was more these little changes I guess in the cultures that I saw is it easier to become a bit more politicized about it though seeing it in the states where it's it's much more of a extremist problem um yeah, I would say so. Um, it helped that I had a lot of amazing black athletes around me that wanted change. Um, I mean, I wasn't that educated. I, I knew a little bit, but there's some people out there. Um, my friend Jordan, who was on the track team, she is a huge philanthropist for for the change. And she she's done things recently, like write a letter to the NCAA saying, look, you're not doing enough and the majority of your athletes are black and we need you to be a part of this movement um and also um a couple of years ago a, a boy called who was 17 Anton Rose he was actually um shot in Pittsburgh so that's kind of how I realized the the force of police brutality and that kind of shook me with all the with all the protests and the marches and stuff like that as well is, is that maybe a sort of a headspace change though going over there because we're the sleepy idyllic south coast town going Very. to pittsburgh where i guess as a, as a person of color do you then have to learn to be wary of your environment in in a completely 180 degree manner um in some ways i think i still live my life and i think i'm I don't know if this is to kind of prevent stuff like that happening, but I'm very much a smiley person to whoever I see. I'm polite. I try to like talk and not seem threatening, uh, I guess, um, in in those ways. So it, it wasn't a complete switch, but definitely being around teammates um, made me way more aware and a kind of wary of, okay, there's certain things you do and don't do um, and you kind of have to stay out of trouble. Um, but especially being around, I guess, the male athletes that probably have to deal with that a lot also, it kind of made me more aware of the situation. I mean, your dad touched on the point of sporting diversity and, you know, him, he is an exception that proves there is an issue with the rule, if I horribly mm-hmm. put it that way within basketball you know, coming through the system here and, and i'm being a part of gb etc etc i mean do you are there small things that even a sport like basketball needs to do to be more inclusive be more representative oh definitely i mean if you look a lot there are a lot of black athletes in basketball and in the sport and i think it also gives a lot of them an outlet so yeah, we, we represent through players, but where are they in management roles in the sport of England, in basketball England? Like, when you get to the higher levels, even coaching-wise, they're starting to become more, but we these players need someone to look up to. Not only can you play, but you can you can coach, you can be a part of administration, Like, but there's no one to really look up to that looks the same as you. So, yeah, I think um, basketball in this country is doing a great job for all kinds of people at the player level but I don't know so much at the higher level at the big corporations at the like um stuff like that I just I think it needs to be more diversity in the sport in terms of after playing is that about you know creating a special 
you know, pathway. I mean, someone like yourself who comes through looking longer term, you find a way to do it. Or what, what are the barriers there, do you think, that stop that happening? Because we've seen great players, particularly your dad's generation of the players that, you know, he played with. Steve Butler obviously has a role within mm-hmm. in basketball England, but for every Steve, for every one of the two Steves, there's lots of other players, people like Peter Scantlebury drifted out of the sport, you know, guys of mm-hmm. legends who should have been in, in roles even today that the, the sort of 2012 generation the ones who have retired none of them really actively involved in specific roles what what for you is the barrier what what would maybe make you think twice or what would maybe make you think oh, you know where's that door for me uh it's hard because not a lot of people have done it so yeah. it kind of puts puts me off in trying to do it um i've had stories from my dad kind of trying to go out for jobs and he was fully qualified and didn't get it and although it wasn't overtly said because of he was black but it it was kind of taken that way I think it's hard because um there's not so much diversity so no one looks like you so you don't know if it's a pathway and I think a lot of people are pushed out on the sport because they get fed up I mean if you look um there's not a lot of ex-basketball players at those high level jobs and it should be if you're if you're working in basketball, you should have a background in basketball. I'm not saying everybody, but I think there there needs to be way more ex players that get involved and are asked to get involved and are kind of encouraged to get involved. And I don't think that's happening. Uh, so I just think the opportunities are thin. And if you look at the percentages of um, people up there in the higher levels of of the sport and in jobs, it, it's not represented the way it should be. And probably the same for females as well in terms of lack of oh, yeah. representation. Mm. Oh, not, definitely. Not, not probably, certainly. Yeah. <laughs> um, females in general, I think. I mean, everyone can say it's getting better, but it needs to get even better. And there have been some amazing female athletes in the sport of basketball in this country. And they, they should get the opportunity. And people should be asking them to be a part of part of um, this country's sport. And I just don't think they are. If they are, it's not well paid enough or it's not an opportunity which they feel like they can take over other other choices is it better in the states because we you know we look at you know we look at the representation obviously in the highest levels of management it's not as good the nba under you know does a lot of things very well but is being questioned quite openly by a lot of its players right now about the lack of mm-hmm. like decision makers gms presidents etc you know in that college environment that you're in do you do you sense that's progressing or do you sense that some people are saying that it's actually regressing? Um, I, I would have to kind of look at numbers to say if it's a progression or regression, but kind of what I've seen is, again, the, the percentages aren't, aren't right. It's majority owned by white people. It's the coaching staff, stuff like that. And obviously it depends. But again, the majority of athletes were people of colour um, and it's not represented in the next in the next step and we've got to look at why so again like you said the NBA the owners and the management stuff like that again it, it's it's not represented the way it should be um, so that's why again I say it's like institutional racism and systemic racism even if it's covert I think and it might not be on purpose but we need to realise like there needs to be diversity in the workplace especially in a sport like basketball where where there is such diversity in the players. 
So that's that. kind of where, yeah, I guess that's where I'm kind of coming from. But I, I, I know a lot of amazing coaches from all different races, and it's just trying to find that that proportion, I guess. How do you think this goes from this point in time? Because it's very easy to have a quick burst of righteous indignation about all this, and then for a topic to mm-hmm. quietly disappear off the map from mm-hmm. for for your generation. Where where do you think this has to go in terms of being transformative? So when you're writing your blog and you've got your own kids coming through that you're not oh, you're not writing <laughs> it could happen. You're not yeah. You know, Twenty two years of age it's not that yeah. hard in the distance. But what what do you think the biggest thing? Where do where do we take this this conversation, this journey from this point so that you're not writing the same blog that your dad has done? Um again it's about the conversation needs to continue. Um and I think a lot of people need to point out when you see someone being ignorant, when they're saying the wrong thing. And also realise it's okay for yourself to say the wrong thing if you're trying to learn. Um, you don't have to get everything right or do everything right, but you're if you're trying and you're educating yourself and acknowledging, I think that's really important. So first, I think the conversation needs to continue. And second, it's not going to be something that just switches. It, I think it is about who we put in power um it's about adding diversity i think it, it's been shown that more diversity i think you get more mixtures of ideas you get you have so many different people from different parts of the country etc um so i think it is about trying to get pathways to get different people in in jobs and in in management and again continuing the conversation is super important Let's talk about your dad. One of my favourite players when I was growing up, dynamic guard and, and great guy. You, you obviously got your brother Luke, Great Britain International as well. This family business, let's talk about that. What what was it? What's it like growing up as being the daughter of Steve Nelson, basketball superstar? <laughs> um, I, I would say I was lucky in terms of it meant that I was around basketball from a very young age. I was around an environment where there were basketball brains everywhere, my dad's friends and people he coached. Um, and I was then lucky enough to be coached by him also. So although it was sometimes a lot, um, having your dad as a coach or having your dad as someone who had played the game, I feel very lucky because a lot of people, especially in this country, don't have that. Um, but yeah, I mean, growing up, I was definitely known as Steve Nelson's daughter and then later on Luke Nelson's sister. Um <laughs> So I just try to kind of go on my own path as well as learn from what they have done um, to try and get my own name also. I mean, a lot of us rebel against what our parents want to do and especially having your dad coaching you as well. Was there ever that point where you thought, I'm not doing this anymore? Um, I think, I think, well, growing up, me and my brother, our parents never forced us into basketball. We honestly tried every sport and it was just a coincidence we both ended up choosing basketball. It was never forced upon us. Um, but I, yeah, there were times that me and my dad would argue a little bit or we'd find it hard to kind of switch off basketball mode at home. But I think that was also because he set up a, a women's and girls program for me, basically, in, in Sussex, which there wasn't one before. And I was traveling to Seven Oaks a lot. So it was a lot of pressure on the both of us, I think. Um, and... I was quite opinionated as a teenager, a young teenager, and <laughs> I think I think I found it a little hard sometimes. But 
we ended up finding a good groove and it, I mean it turned out great and and then he'd come to games after we stopped coaching me and we'd have our talk and then it would be done so um yeah I think we made it work what's what was that pathway like for you I mean in terms of you're fortunate to be in that position that, that your dad's you know, great coach great basketball mind and you're coming through and you, you know you're captain in GB under 18s but from your perspective now that you've been a few years removed from the pathway on this side of the Atlantic did that pathway work for you in what ways did it did it not work for you maybe perhaps as well um I think mine was a bit um disjointed I would say my pathway uh, I kind of I, I grew up playing with boys from seven to probably 13 I, I was playing with boys and um, played under 30s National League for Worthing Thunder at the time uh, and then I was going to play the next year after having a good year and unfortunately Basketball England kind of said no like this is the age where you kind of have to start playing with girls and we appealed it and it didn't happen so that's when it kind of got difficult and I ended up having to travel to Seven Oaks to play the year which was a great experience um, but poor mum and dad having to drive me all that way um, <laughs> Uh, I would say we made it work um, and I wouldn't change it. I think the pathway helped me kind of be a versatile player because I played anywhere from one to the five growing up, depending on the teams, if it was boys or girls or et cetera, et cetera. Um, so for me, it worked. Um, and it was hard kind of switching to girls. I, I was quite an aggressive player and it, it sounds weird, but I kind of didn't know how to, to add that to my game in the female game straight away uh and and the it, but i would say no no one no two paths are the same so everyone's journey especially in england basketball is very different and you've got to find ways that will work and realize what doesn't and i guess me and my dad realized that after playing with him and after i'd finished high school here it was time to kind of go to an academy where i could have kind of that coaching all the time and he couldn't give that to me and it was it was great going to oakland as well do you think, I mean, before we talk about that academy programme, but do you mm -hmm. think, yeah, having Luke there, obviously any of you guys still work out together, but does mm -hmm. how, how much did that help having someone who's you know, a little bit older, but has gone through a lot of the same learning issues, you can kind of, you can see how his progress, I mean, was was that a, a big help, a small help? How, how does that impact on you? Yeah, I think it was definitely a help kind of having him go through everything a couple of years before me to see see how it worked out. And I mean, I still wear long socks because of him. As as a kid, <laughs> he used to wear them and I kind of wanted to be like him. So I still wear those to, to this day. But definitely going from, I guess, different like academies into America, that's when it really helped was kind of kind of seeing seeing that in the works um and being a part of his journey there but also he, he works works still very hard and i think it definitely instilled a, a kind of work ethic in me having him there and kind of wanting to be where he was and where he was going so he's great and we still work out together and we still have arguments about who's the best shooter in the household my dad tries to join in and we tell him he's out of it by now but um <laughs> i'm no, sure he's yeah, having none of that <laughs> <laughs> no don't you know he's definitely not but yeah I, he's I, i'm very lucky to be around some great basketball brains so that academy experience in oakland so we are yeah there's always this debate in this country if we had 20 academies from you know inverness to worthing that basketball would be in great shape is that how you see it, that you would see it having been through that system? Do academies 
give you what you need to then make that next level? I think so. I think, like I said, everyone's journey is different. I'm not saying you have to, but I think Academy does give you that that um, opportunity to kind of live and breathe basketball. Um, you have opportunities to go in and shoot in the mornings. You have a schedule. Um, you're obviously studying. It's kind of a trial run for if you want to go to America. And it gave me a lot of independence, um, which definitely helped with the next step in my life. Uh, and I think it's really good um, to be around a lot of people your age that are trying to do the same thing and it pushes you and you kind of have to balance life and school and social social life. So I, for me, I think it's a great opportunity to kind of grow not only as a basketball player, but as a person. You get to play the best kids in your age group as well as kind of learning how to cook and stuff for yourself as well. You go to Pittsburgh University, you autumn of 2017, 17 starts your first couple of years there. Hard, hard for you was was that initial college experience because some people jump straight into it, take it straight away, others struggle with the transition. What was your move over there like? Um, it was quite simple, the move, I would say. I was ready to kind of go out there. I did an extra year in Pittsburgh, uh, in um, at Oakland, so I was a year older than a lot of the freshmen, which I think it's good for me um so I think the transition wasn't too hard the basketball of course I would say you can do everything you want but you can't be prepared for college basketball it's kind of something you go into and you have to learn over all over again it is definitely your life um I remember so you kind of have different phases you have like summer workouts and conditioning and then you have pre-season and then around 30 days before your first game you have official practice and I remember the first day of official practice, probably 20 minutes in, and it was extremely fast paced. And it was, we went on for about three and a half hours that day, but 15, 20 minutes in, I was like, what have I gotten myself into? Um, and it is, it's that kind of light bulb switch that you're like, okay, this is a whole new level, especially playing in the ACC, um, playing for Pitt um, in that kind of conference and environment. But you, it's one of those things, once you're in an environment for long enough, you kind of get a rhythm and an understanding and it kind of feels normal after a while. Last October, though, and anything but normal, you you, <laughs> you, you, you undergo surgery. And a couple of months earlier, you'd, you'd broken up, not feeling particularly well. I, did, I guess if I start in those terms, how does the journey unfold to find that you, you had a tumour on your appendix? Uh, yeah, um, I woke up and I just, I, I, I just thought I had a stomachache at first and then it was really chronic pains and I was throwing up and I, I thought it was food poisoning. So I kind of just like went with it and my uh, roommate, actually a really great friend of mine, uh, she wasn't a part of um, the team, but she was like, oh, my mum had appendicitis a few weeks ago. Could it be that? And I kind of Googled some symptoms and I was like, nah, it's not. I'll, I'll be fine. <laughs> so I probably prolonged it for about 12 hours. Um, and then finally I said to my mum, okay, maybe I should go to the hospital. And I go and everything. And they kind of do a scan. I say, yep, appendicitis. A few hours later, I was getting ready to have the surgery to have my appendix out. Everything went great. Um couple of weeks later, we had some checkups with doctors for the scar and I was actually starting to get back into playing and that whole summer and going into all that, I, I was having a great summer and super excited for the season. Uh, and then the doctor calls and the surgeon actually calls and like, oh, can, can you come in? And me and the staff at Pitt, we kind of brushed it off like, no, we have doctors here, we can just check up on like 
the scars and stuff like that they're quite minimalist so um we brushed it off for about another week or so and finally they're like no we need you to come in so I go in and that's when they kind of said they did their pathology on my appendix and they found I think it was a 2.5 centimeter um it's called a neuroendocrine tumor um in the appendix so that's kind of how that all came about so to put it another words, it is cancer what yes <laughs> what walk us through walk us through your mind you know like anyone we know that the c word idea walk us through your mind when you they put it in those terms to you if i'm honest it didn't really click i think it would have been worse if i heard it about someone else i think for me, it was never anything I felt, and I'd been told this cancer had been growing in me for years. Um, so it was hard to kind of put into words. And so I went straight into plan mode. Okay, what's next? What's going to happen? What do I have to do? Whereas I called my mum that day, and obviously she was in emotion mode, and my own family were, of course. Uh, so I was more worried about how, how everyone else was reacting rather than myself. I'd never really, never really clicked in for me, and until I kind of had to realise the next steps and stuff like that. And what is the current status of that? Is that, are you all clear or where do you, where, yeah, is, so, is, this, is this the end of it? Or? So yeah, a few weeks after that, probably a month after that, I had to have another surgery where they removed the whole right side of my colon and then reconnected it through staples to my small intestine. Um, and then I took a lot of lymph nodes out as well. A couple of them tested positive, but... Uh, I had my first scan in January. Um, everything's kind of melding well together and there doesn't seem any more signs of cancer at the moment. I have to have another scan in July um, next month. So kind of my life now is I'm, I'm good to go. I can play, I'm cleared, but for the next 10 years and I'm going to have to really be having checkups and scans. I think for the next few years, it'll be every six months and they can prolong it a bit. Um, so I'm very lucky that kind of, out of the blue it was caught so early but it was super rare because this cancer is usually for people with like 60 plus and it was it was just super random um and I don't think I really had time to really internalize it I think now the only thing I, I struggle with is some some bowel stuff and eating and I guess a bit of paranoia about different symptoms and stuff and I think everyone goes through that after you've heard the word cancer once um so, but I'm great. I'm trying to just get in shape now and get ready kind of for my next step. You, you couldn't play for a while or even practice for, you know, for almost two months after that. And you're, so you're sitting there, it's the season starts. You sit on the mm-hmm. bench having to watch your teammates. Does, does that change you as a basketballer to be able to, I guess, have the luxury to be able to sit there, although it's, I'm sure it's pretty annoying as well but did that luxury just sort of sit there and study things and watch a game from a different perspective yeah I tried to use that time um productively and I actually we had a quite a lot of new players and young freshmen coming in so I used that time to try and help especially them kind of grow in their game and tell them what I see um I would sit on the bench and kind of analyze the game and and then practice try and help my teammates because I've quite, I believe I have quite a high IQ and I, I understand a lot and I have good memory when it comes to plays. So a lot of the young ones, I would help them. Um, I had the opportunity to kind of talk to the players um, during timeouts and that kind of thing. And I even did some stats and stuff. So I'm all, <laughs> I guess I kind of got to see the other side of basketball when I actually 
think as much as I'd love to have been out there, I, I think I enjoyed that part of it and to be able to kind of be a leader without being on the court. Does that teach you more about the, I guess the concept of sort of basketball IQ to, you know, to sort of mm-hmm. step outside a game in a sense and see how it flows and what needs to change almost slightly in a coach's mentality? Yeah, um, I think it definitely helped and kind of seeing it from the other side kind of help and I think I hope it will help me when I get back on the court um and as a person who does want to be a coach um in the future um it was definitely a kind of insight into how I would want to want to coach the game and be a part of something when you you're coming back from that I know you had some workouts with with Luke Mm -hmm. does the does the element of of sort of conditioning become different because you know if you an injury is one thing and it's you if you as Luke suffered over the years, you know, if you mm-hmm. break something or twist something or sprain something, it's a very specific program. How difficult is it? Because mentally, you're having to limit yourself rather than just fixing something. Does do, you know, how, what's the process like of getting yourself back in game shape from that sort of situation? Yeah, I, I'm quite stubborn, so I, I'm like, I'm <laughs> fine. Like, I, I kind of want to go zero to hundred, but obviously, programs don't allow you to do that. Uh, it was it, it took a lot of patience, I guess, and realizing you're going to be down here and it's going to take time to get back up there. Um, I had a great trainer out in Pittsburgh that kind of helped me, but yeah, it was, it was a struggle trying to especially get in shape um, and then try to get in basketball shape during the season. It was it was really hard, and I, I tried to come back and play a few games, but we had just kind of started conference time, which was obviously the hardest part of the year, playing against a lot of ranked teams. And I kind of made that decision, okay, mentally, physically, I'm not ready to play. Let me take this year and get it back later on and kind of take the rest of the year just to get in great shape. And I was a part of our practice squad and kind of get back in the rhythm of playing the game at that level. Tell me about meeting Holly Rowe. For those who don't know it, the ESPN reporter who's been through cancer, covers a lot of women's basketball play over, over the years. And she did something quite special for you. Oh, she did, yeah. I, I hated all the attention on me she um actually she was meant to come to Pittsburgh for some volleyball tournament um a couple of days later but she surprised me and came the day of our game and was there to support me I mean who, who would have ever thought something like that would happen uh, she's amazing she I have a number we texted we've um facetimed uh and she surprised me and no one told me so I hadn't even done my hair at that point with loads <laughs> of camera crews no she's amazing and a, a great support and for her to feel like she wanted to come out and see me um play my first game this season after everything uh, it would definitely be something that sticks with me for a long time at the end of all this having done three years at Pitt and you're mm-hmm. you know, three quarters of the way towards getting your degree you decide to transfer out to to Florida International what's the thinking behind the transfer at the end of your junior year um to put a long story short without kind of giving you a lot of details uh when I did decide to do my red shirt I didn't get the support I wanted and kind of had to fight for myself in order to get that year back um, I did a lot of, I felt like I did a lot of things with Pitt. I, I was happy to kind of publicize everything in order to help with the program and, and stuff like that. And I didn't feel like I got the support I should have um, and needed at the time after going through everything I'd gone through. Um, so I, I just, I guess that trusted was lost and they, they had different, I guess, different plans for the, for the team with their own players coming through. 
But again, it was a hard choice because I always wanted to play at the highest level and playing in the ACC is the highest level. Um, I'm proud of what I'd achieved at Pitt. I, I was able to start as a freshman and I started as a sophomore. As a sophomore, I think I finished fourth in the ACC for three-point percentage. Um, so again, I kind of made my mark at that level, but it wasn't ever something I'm ever going to be satisfied with. But again, the trust wasn't there and they were moving in a different direction and it was time to kind of move on from that situation. I'm very lucky to kind of have two, two places to call home uh, in, my, in my college career and kind of have two different experiences, one in cold Pittsburgh and one in sunny Miami. Um, so I guess, and I was lucky that um, at FIU, uh, the, coach, the head coach now who just got hired, um, she recruited me when she was an assistant at Boston College when I was first trying to make it out to America. So we had already built that relationship and trust and we had stayed in contact and it just felt right. And I said, I couldn't say no to her twice. So it was just, it feels like it's meant to be. And I'm really excited for that next step. And that it was all about going to Miami in the sunshine, wasn't it? <laughs> I mean, it, it doesn't, it doesn't hurt, does it? <laughs> and, and it means I get, I get two more years and I'm almost finishing my degree. So I get to also do a year of my master's. So it all kind of makes sense. And yes, Miami isn't a bad place to have to live for two years either. No, it's for, after the cold <laughs> winters of Pittsburgh, what, what a result. Um, ex explain to a lot, de demystify this process of transfers because, you know, mm -hmm. obviously you decide you want to move, you put your name in the mm -hmm. database. What happens then? Uh, yeah, so you kind of put yourself in, in the portal and go from there. You have a lot of coaches contact you and through all kinds of media and email and you kind of do that. I was lucky enough to also have a second support system in Steve Veer, who has been a huge part of my journey. Um, he's a he's a great guy. He, he, I've known him for years, and he kind of helped me decipher again, like he did the first time, where I want to go, and kind of helped me realize the basketball is important, but so is the lifestyle. Hence Miami. <laughs> no. Um, <laughs> uh, so kind of from there, and it is basically going in like a freshman all over again. You have FaceTime calls. You kind of it was different with Corona going on, so a lot of it was obviously through through the computer, but they kind of show you what they can offer, their campus, their basketball, and that's kind of where you go, and then you, you decide where you want to transfer to. And FA just posted a picture of a beach. And that, that, was, <laughs> <laughs> that, was, that was the selling point. What, what are you hoping for from these? I mean, obviously, it'll be one year of Phil playing, but what are you hoping for from the remainder of the college career? I actually get two years to play, hopefully, mm. if, if the NCAA mm. allow me to um, after redshirting. But uh, obviously, this program has struggled in the past. I, I want to, Coach Burks is my head coach. I actually want to be a part of helping her build her, her program. Um, I want to be able to be a leader and kind of enjoy my last years of playing basketball in college. Um, I have high expectations for myself in this conference. But again, it, a lot of it is about trying to build this program for her and with her and, and the rest of the staff and kind of um, put FIU on the map with some amazing players that are already there and that they're bringing in. Um, so that's kind of basketball-wise what I'm looking for. But again, I have high expectations for myself to go in and produce and be a leader and stuff like that. And what were you majoring at the end of this? So 
So I will be a major in communications with a minor of economics, and then I don't know what I'm going to do for my master's. So you'll be working in PR in either Wall Street or the city. Oh God, no! I don't want an office job. <laughs> <laughs> what do you What do you see beyond college? Have you thought about that next move? Is it trying to play pro, like like Luke did, or is it a career with a bit of basketball on the side? Where does it go after that? Um, I've always thought about wanting to play pro and that's definitely an option that I want to look into after I finish. Um, there are, after having someone so close to me kind of go through the pro life, there are positives and there are definitely negatives that not a lot of people talk about um, through the lifestyle of being pro. Um, but the, another part of me is about my health and kind of figuring out how I can still get my checkups and stuff whilst doing that. and. Not even that, but I think in the long term, I, I definitely want to coach. And actually, I want to coach men's basketball is, is the goal. Um, I, I think I get, as much as I love the game, playing basketball and stuff like that, I get a lot of pleasure kind of helping others and being a part of their journey. Um, so that's definitely something I want to get into. And, and when people ask me why men's basketball, I kind of, of course, there are a lot of, a lot of reasons, but... I kind of, I'm not the most athletic person, probably can jump over a piece of paper, but <laughs> I kind of, I'd love to be able to enforce like my IQ and my, my brain for the game into someone extremely athletic, I guess, um, that kind of has, can help them kind of gain both. Because the answer, the answer to that question is why men's basketball. The answer should be why not men's basketball. No, you're very right, and that's the issue right now. Is but I think this is the perfect time to kind of get into it as females are getting more and more into the men's game. I think, and I have some great connections in that, and I'm I'm really excited for hopefully the future. Do you take a bit of inspiration from you know people like Becky Hammond, you know, mm-hmm. other sort of female coaches of England, Lindsay Harding, of course, as well. That mm-hmm. I've gone into the NBA and. You know, a few years after that sort of glass ceiling was punched through, everyone now is kind of like, yep, another coach. Yeah, definitely. Um, I think they've done a great job in paving the way for a lot of future females to get into the game because it is a why not. Like Females can coach and they can coach men as well as they can coach anyone else. Um, if you're a good coach, you're a good coach and that's the end of it. And actually there have been way, way more females getting into the game. I think this year been the first female um, hired as a head coach in, in the men's college game and lucky enough I know some some old coaches and old friends that have kind of paved their way into parts of the game and I'm hopefully going to lean on them a little bit and ask for their help in terms of how I kind of get into it. You'd be out there with your clipboard and your whiteboard <laughs> and your stat sheets before you know it. Yeah but I'll still be able to beat them in the shooting com- competition don't worry. Especially Luke. Oh, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> well, Callie, we wish you all the very best in your, your new leg of, of your life over in Florida. When you eventually get there, who knows what anything's mm-hmm. happening right now. But um, mm-hmm. thank you very much for coming on the MVP cast and sharing your thoughts and uh, continued good health and success to you. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed this. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Cal. That is it for this edition of the MVP cast brought to you with our sponsors at Total Environmental Compliance. Give them a wee follow on social media at TE Compliance Limited. You can get all our previous editions at MVP247.com or subscribe via your preferred podcast provider. Please do leave us a review and you want preferably a nice one. Or if you want to get in touch, reach out to me via Twitter at Mark Brittball. Another edition of the MVP cast coming very soon. But for me, Mark Woods, it's goodbye for now.